0: Welcome to you O Today. I'm Paul Pepys, Director of the Oregon Humanities Center. My guest today is Gabrielle Hayden, Assistant Librarian for Research Data Management and Reproducibility in the Data Services Department of the University of Oregon Libraries. Prior to coming to the U of O in 2019, Hayden was a visiting assistant professor at Reed College where she taught poetry and the poetics of translation. Hayden has a PhD in English literature from Yale University. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me. So how does one with a PhD in English literature find themselves to be a data management librarian? How did you tell us about that trajectory, that, that journey?
1: Absolutely. The journey really amounts to that gap between when I was teaching at Reed College and coming here, which was about five years or so years, as you know, teaching and being a part of a university often involves not as much choice about where you want to live and Mm -hmm. i knew i wanted to live here in oregon and so as the position at reed was ending i looked around for a living wage job and there's work in tech and so it was a really interesting transition from being in work where your identity is around your scholarship and your thinking to being a sort of You go to work and you do your thing. I I made that transition actually via volunteering with um, an organization called Hack Oregon Mm -hmm. that does um, open government data work and thinking about um, housing and uh, working with the Portland Housing Bureau around visualizing their data. So Mm -hmm. learning about data that way, becoming competent in it, was a really fun process and really similar to I had been very interested in language and translation in my scholarly work, and learning both the kind of jargon language of tech, mm-hmm. I used that same skill, right? You go into <laughs> learning a foreign language, and you are talking to people, and the three of the words in the sentence you don't know, and you kind of pick them up from context, it's the exact same <laughs> skill set. <Yeah>. And <laughs> similarly, with thinking about computational languages, they are in some ways very different, but in other ways, There's a lot of the same skills when you're thinking about linguistic capacity. So that was really fun, and from there I found my way into um, kind of a business analyst consulting role. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, when the opportunity came up for my family to make the move to Eugene, this role was magically available (laughs) and I thought that looks like the coolest most interesting thing ever and what an amazing way to take that uh, previous life and previous perspective and the technical competency that I developed and bring them together and so I'm really at this moment now that I'm here of of developing the narrative of mm-hmm. weaving those two together hmm. in part through my interactions with people here.
0: Okay. Fascinating. Well, let's hope that in the next 20 minutes or so you can help us <laughs> understand this weaving together that you're attempting. Um, so let's start uh, with some basics. So what does data services do in the library, the Department of Data Services, what do they do?
1: Absolutely. So. Um, Data Services par- is part of a division within the library called Digital Strategies. Um, uh, and that's made up of the Data Services Department and then um, the Digital Scholarship Center. Mm-hmm. So, in terms of thinking um, about the interest of, in humanities here, the Digital Scholarship Center works directly with scholars, often humanists and social scientists, on um, digital exhibits and sometimes other kinds of digital humanities projects where they're collaborating as well as consulting. Um, the data services department is more exclusively consulting. So we have a pilot statistical consulting service right now where we have GEs who are consulting with um, undergraduate and primarily graduate students on their statistical work. And we also offer services around how to manage your data, developing data management plans. Um, plans for grants but um, that can be understood to be a very broad concept so often people will think well data must be in a spreadsheet or in a database Mm -hmm. data is really um, for practical purposes in our department any kind of information that could be video or audio or um, citations that can be usefully where you can use a computational technology to more usefully manage it in some way
0: okay that's interesting so tell us a little bit about um, how data management can help humanities people so i 'm a humanities person i right. am like okay wha- wait right uh, you 're making me think I have data
1: absolutely so you definitely <laughs> do <laughs> so I mean some of it um, uh, the the most low tech you're not a, let's say you 're not a digital humanist you 're just you know my early work was all um, was a lot of it was archival mm-hmm. looking at mm-hmm. um, unpublished translations. And I spent a ton of time in archives. I once almost got bed bugs because I stayed with a friend who had bed bugs, (laughs) Uh, uh. (laughs) going to the Library of Congress, apropos of nothing. Mm. I didn't get them. (laughs) Um, But just thinking about that, the physical experience of the archives, I love thinking about that. But as part of that, right, you, you get all of these notes. You often, in that case, I was only there for a week, so I took pictures of an entire unpublished manuscript, right, There was a photograph of every page. So how do you keep track of those? Because as it turns out, over the course of a long project, our short-term memory is no longer good enough. We can't just, uh, as an undergraduate, I would remember, well, in the orange book, it's sort of halfway in and I have a sticky note. That's not going to work for a big project. So managing those notes. So there are um, Zotero is a great open source uh, way of managing your citations, but you can also use it to keep track of some of those images or there are other Um, programs that you could use say to manage those archive images and keep the metadata with it metadata just means data about your data so you know which folder is it from all that stuff that goes into when you're going to cite that where it actually came from Um, so so that's a a very basic example but then if you are um, a digital humanist or someone else who's dealing with larger bits of information I can help you to Think about best practices in managing your code, keeping copies of the versions, sharing that data through um, a data repository, making an interactive dashboard to um, help bring people into understanding the work that
0: you do. So how how does one develop a data management plan?
1: That's a great question. A lot of it depends on what, um, what your goals are. So if you are writing the, your management plan for a grant, then there is a specific process and we have a tool that we subscribe to called the DMP tool. We teach classes about it um that can help you walk through the requirements for your specific grant and what the grant is the grantor is looking for
0: what is dmt stand for? dmp
1: data management plan, plan. oh dmp okay, yeah right. sorry so that is sort of the the bare minimum what you would have to tell a granting organization mm-hmm. but at a deeper level come to us at the beginning of your project, because just like it's easier to keep a clean room clean because you know where everything goes, it's easier to, f- to think now, come to us now and say, at the end of this, I want a website where it looks like this, or at the end of this, I'm gonna analyze this data using natural language processing, and I w- I'm hoping to come to these kinds of conclusions. If you come at the beginning, we can say, hey, when you begin to ingest that information here's how you can structure it so that halfway through you don't have to restructure it. And here are the resources, here's who you should talk to, to here's the workshop you should go to, here's the skill sets. And we begin by asking, what are your existing competencies? How comfortable do you feel? Mm -hmm. Um, And depending on what those are and what you're excited about, we can lead you down a technological rabbit hole or we can kind of walk you through some some very basic things that will make your life easier.
0: So, uh, Assistant Librarian for Research, Data Management, and Reproducibility. Yes. So, reproducibility, if if uh, our audience knows that word at all, they probably yes. are thinking about something that has to do with scientific research, right? Absolutely. So, in order for something to be legitimated as scientific knowledge, it needs to be reproducible.
1: Absolutely. So, Right. How does that work
0: for humanities people?
1: That's a great question. <laughs> I'm working on a paper about that right now with some colleagues uh, and I think it's somewhat con- contested. So some people would say reproducibility is a scientific paradigm and that's not appropriate for some humanist and qualitative scholarship. Mm -hmm. And you can think, for example, of bird counts. If you count the number of birds that pass by a particular place at a particular time, that time does not recur. Mm -hmm. And so you can't recount those birds. On the other hand, the analysis that you do of that data um, depends on the specifics of how the birds were counted and a lot of information about it. And so other parts of the analysis of that bird count could be reproducible. Um, In the humanities, I like to think that a classic English paper has always been reproducible in the sense that I sit down and I read your analysis of um, Langston Hughes or of of Paradise Lost and you take me through, if it's a well-written paper, your thought process and through your citations you you bring in a conversation with other people that is verifiable right so if you say you know shakespeare said such and such or hamlet said such and such then we can look at well which which folio of hamlet did you use Mm -hmm. um and you don't have to have that conversation but someone can look at the version of hamlet that you cited and they can read those editors introduction or footnotes and see okay you know, it's this folio, this is why they made that decision, and they could come back and say, I think that your argument only holds with one folio and not the other, Mm -hmm. and I disagree for such and such a reason, right? So there's a kind of transparency, and the process of getting to the argument is accessible, and in that sense can be reproduced because someone else can go back through it. Mm -hmm. Um, And the challenge with digital humanities, there's more and more, I think, there's, a move towards openness in digital humanities mm-hmm. data. But when mm-hmm. you look at early work, like the work of Franco Moretti, he would say the data show this as though that is clear, transparent, and not something to argue about, mm-hmm. right? Scientists know that when you say statistically, blah, 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 that that is the beginning of a conversation, right? Not the end. Just to, to argue like statistics are something to argue about, mm-hmm. not, to say and therefore I am right, yes. right? Mm. And the challenge with with humanists is that sometimes there's both developing the convention of sharing your data and the ways that your data were developed. And then there is the fact of other people's competency to enter that argument with you. Mm-hmm. So I think of old philological texts where they didn't bother to translate the Latin or the German because well obviously if you're reading this you must know no. Latin and German, mm-hmm. right? And we're at another moment where one of the things I want to think about and help scholars work with is if you are doing technical work, how do you invite scholars who are less technical into that work and help that be transparent in a way that they can engage in that conversation and argument.
0: Mm, Fascinating. So you just in passing uh, alluded to the fact that a lot of humanities scholars feel proprietary about their work yes absolutely you know uh, one of the things about digital humanities i mean like you know um peer-to-peer review for example right um uh, what are the benefits for people like me of sharing why should i do that a
1: (laughs) hundred percent great question (laughs) really it's the the scientists ask the same question Um, we all want citations one of the things that we're working on with developing data repositories and the uo is just bringing online a dedicated data repository Mm -hmm. for sharing your data is that that's another way to be cited Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. so that um, on the one hand if you don't share your data maybe no one can steal it on the other hand if you put your data in a repository with a citation associated with it Mm -hmm. then you've kind of Made your mark right you've said this is my work and if someone wants to use it in the service of furthering ideas in accordance with academic honesty they need to cite that work and that's more credit that goes to me there's also the opportunity to reuse the work of others so you're giving them a citation you're furthering um, their work and you're allowing your work to have greater reach and strength so I think it's a matter of um, of broadening the scope of what the field can do, mm-hmm. and um, but ultimately recognizing that everyone's out there surviving and trying to you know get those lines on the CV. Um, thinking about publishing data as another line on the CV mm-hmm. and as a way to and one of the things we can do within the library is work. With your citations and help you document, um, you know, how often has this work been cited or downloaded? How, how often has this data been looked at by others?
0: Hmm. Interesting, um, interesting. So let's talk a little bit more about what the library can help people like me yes. with. So you mentioned in passing that um, there are these workshops that are offered. Yes, so tell us about absolutely. some of those workshops to learn how to, to manage research data.
1: yeah so we have um, some of our workshops are in the line of um, language programming Mm -hmm. so R and Python Um, for digital humanists you might be interested the Python sequence is going to end with a basic introduction to machine learning that might sound sort of abstract but if you've done um, text analysis or natural language processing those are kinds of machine learning and I used to find that that sounded very fancy and complicated, and in order to design machine learning, um, you need to know a lot of math that I don't know. But in order to use machine learning, you don't need to learn very much at all, <laughs> right? So there's a, that's a tool mm-hmm. that you can use, and we help, can help introduce you to that. Um, but we also have workshops um, out of the Dream Lab, out of the Digital Scholarship Center, mm-hmm. in using Omeka, in setting up WordPress, in those kinds of things that allow you to communicate your work to others. So you can think of um, it as kind of the back end managing the data and the front end of a website communicating that data to others. And we have workshops that can help with both. We also help with, um, we also have workshops specifically around data management planning. um, I'm sure I'm forgetting some on Excel.
0: That's good. That's fine.
1: (laughs) And if you're a a faculty member and you have an idea of something specific, if we have capacity, um, we'd love to work with you specifically to develop a workshop that could be coordinated in time and adjunct to your um, class or where we came into the class.
0: So one of the things that, that you guys do, and it's been a very great benefit for graduate students in the humanities, is to to give this training to them. Yes. And in our experience in the English department, those of our grad students who have had these trainings, who have become competent in various forms of data management and digital humanities work, are faring better on the job market.
1: Oh, fantastic. So,
0: um, tell us about the efforts of the library uh, to train grad students in the digital humanities.
1: Absolutely. I mean, we're working on, um, we work regularly with, with the faculty in digital humanities here to get the word out about our um, projects and we take very seriously when people start to come in and ask a similar set of questions to really say oh maybe we need a workshop about that topic Um, but a lot of what we've done and the workshops we've had have been in response specifically to what's going on in the digital humanities and in other fields and what are the identified needs so and um we now have a website up that i will um connect you with that has a list of all of the workshops that we regularly offer um and uh yeah does that answer your question great
0: so um one of the things that that is occurring to me uh, as you speak is ways in which um digital humanities work this kind of Uh, data management might increase the legibility of the humanities, both within institutions and more generally to the public. you want to say something about that?
1: Absolutely. One of the really fun parts of my job and one of the really interesting parts of having made this career transition is learning um, to be kind of multilingual in a disciplinary sense, Mm -hmm. right, so Mm -hmm. that um, I come and talk to you and I talk about the work of my department in the language as much as I can of the humanities, right? right? And I try to think about what are the words that will make sense to humanists and make them want to come and talk to me. Mm -hmm. And then when I go to the psychology department and the chemistry department, I do the same thing. And obviously I know way less about psychology and chemistry. I don't have a graduate degree in those fields, Mm -hmm. but I can read a few articles and get a sense of like, what are the buzzwords and how are people thinking and feeling? So, um, So that's part of what's been really, yeah, been really fun about this work. And I think that part of what I want to give to humanists is a sense of of just that basic control over the language of Mm -hmm. what they're doing and how it can be translated to and from the languages of technology and the languages of these scientific fields that have so come to dominate the university landscape and also actually the language of business right so more than I thought it was very interesting to spend a year and a half working with Mm. um, accountants and (laughs) finance people in the private sector because now I think when I look at like accountability or like you, you think about like a department making the case for itself or being numbers driven like I've been in there with the accountants counting up what those numbers are and understanding how fungible they are and how definitions um, really can change the interpretation. I mean, numbers are subject to interpretation Mm -hmm. and humanists can bring their skills of interpretation to numbers in the same way that they can to texts. And I really want to help people feel that they are empowered to do that.
0: Well, so I think some of us in the humanities feel that we know that to be a fact. But yes. the institution that we operate within does Absolutely. not understand that, right? So we're suspicious of efforts to um, metricize what we do. A hundred percent. <laughs> yes,
1: and and it's it's a dangerous business, right? Okay. Especially, I mean, one question is like, who has control over defining those numbers mm-hmm. and? Um, and the, the, the frame of that is, yeah. is everything.
0: Well, it's incumbent upon us in the humanities, I think, to be proactive in defining those things.
1: Absolutely. For the institutions yes. rather
0: than having the institutions yes. define them for us.
1: Yes, and I think getting back to your point of how can we as humanists explain what we do, um, thinking critically about when to resist that kind of metrification mm. and when to sort of seize the means of production of the metrification and define the terms thereof.
0: Well, you need to come talk to a lot of people in the <laughs> humanities about this. Um, well, so let's talk a little bit about your past life. Yes. So um, I want to talk about your scholarship, your Please. your career as a literary scholar. So you, your, your uh, dissertation work was on uh, translations by Ezra Pound, William Carlos Williams, and Langston Hughes. Of yes. Spanish language poetry so absolutely why did you get to that why is that yes. important
1: yes you know it started I had the great privilege of taking a course in african-american poetry from Elizabeth Alexander mm. who's now the head of the Mellon Foundation am an amazing poet and incredibly kind person and she sent us to the Beinecke to do a paper
0: the Beinecke, the greatest but, research library, academic research library in the world. Okay. Yes, in, in my opinion,
1: incredible, beautiful. <laughs> it's it's all made of marble, which is just ridiculous. But more to the point, it has amazing archival resources. And I thought, okay, I'll just see what there is of Langston Hughes. And I was taking a course in literary translation at the time, and I thought, you know, I'll just see what's. And I found these great. Um, translations of Langston Hughes into German during the 30s mm. and um, a little mm. bit of correspondence around that. And I thought, wow, you know, what did what did Langston Hughes mean to Germans in the 30s right at the beginning of like the rise of Hitler and mm. why, you know, w- what did these anthologies signify culturally in Germany? That I thought it was totally fascinating. But of course my German is not that great <laughs> um, and my Spanish is a lot better. And uh, so I, then I thought, well, what about Hughes in Spanish, and I slowly found my way um, uh, to these other works and realizing um, that uh, Pound and Williams also did this Spanish translation. And narratively, it worked out really well because Pound got to meet my fall guy, right? So, he starts out as a Spanish major, Mm -hmm. but Spain and Spanish literature is sort of associated with femininity, with racial mixture, things that Ezra Pound does not wish to be affiliated with, right? So he sort of moves away from that. William Carlos Williams is, um, his family is from Puerto Rico, and when he corresponds, Ezra Pound calls him Dago Bill, Mm -hmm. right? Which is a a slur against Mm -hmm. Puerto Ricans. Mm -hmm. And, um, so he, as, uh, William Cross Williams is really kind of trying to like claim white privilege as a doctor and like a middle-class white guy who's also from Puerto Rico and kind of navigating that and sometimes really claiming the Spanish language literary traditions and saying, this is how I define, I am a United Stateser, mm-hmm. um and at other times really kind of separating himself from it a bit. And I think, um, you know, from many reasons, Uh, Langston Hughes comes out really beautifully here. He (laughs) did so, (laughs) I just, I love his work so much and he did so many translations that later in his life he wouldn't do more Spanish translations without a publisher because he was like, look, people won't, between him being African-American and uh, you know the, the connotations of like no one's interested in Latin American literature or those are all communists or various things, it wouldn't get published, but he did such great and such interesting work. So I think um, telling that story was really valuable. It gave a really different insight into um, how, how those authors thought about their own literary style. And it's been fun to think about now in a different way to think about like the, the connotations of programming languages, right? Mm. And how gendered they can be. Um, I was teaching a workshop recently, and a very nice middle-aged uh, white guy came in and said, is this the R class? Because um, I, I wasn't sure because of the demographic in the room, because it was mostly women. And, uh, and I was like, oh, yes, yes, it is. And anyway, so interesting stuff to think about.
0: So we've got about a minute and a half left. Yes. Did you use data management in your own research?
1: No, I am a great example of what not to do. I depended a lot. I didn't, I was not into all this at the time. I depended a lot on my short-term memory. Um, For metadata, I just took a picture of, you know, the archival folders have all the information Mm -hmm, right on. mm -hmm. I just took the photograph with the metadata right in the frame better than nothing. but I, if I could go back and counsel my old self, I would have a lot of helpful
0: advice. How long did it take you to get to get yourself up to speed? You know, it depends on
1: where you count from, uh-huh. right? right? I mean, um, I spent a year working with this nonprofit, a year and a half at this old job, and then here, once you're familiar with certain kinds of technological things, they transfer really quickly. Mm -hmm. Sort of like, you know, Portuguese, you're moving into Spanish, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. except even more so. It it moves very quickly one into the other.
0: Well, uh, Gabrielle, it's been really interesting talking to you. Thanks so much. And we'll we'll look forward to learning more from you and from the other people in uh, data management services. Thanks. It's been a real pleasure.
1: Thank you so much.
0: I've been speaking with Gabrielle Hayden, Assistant Librarian for Research Data Management and Reproducibility in the Data Services Department of the University of Oregon Libraries. Thanks so much for watching.